Queen's state funeral had been planned for decades with millions spent and thousands involved. Well, the pomp of it all save the monarchy on a momentous, if not surprising day. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing? Very happy to be joining you, Michael. One important, mighty, auspicious day in modern British history. Look forward to uh, examining it in closer detail with the best person I can think of. Well, apparently, since we're talking superlatives, this is going to be the most important event, or it, it will have been um, the most important event ever, and that will ever happen. You'll find out later in the show who said that if you haven't already seen on Twitter. The Daily Mail estimated 4.1 billion people would watch the Queen's funeral. That seems a little overstated to me. But the first state funeral since the death of Winston Churchill was undoubtedly a grand affair. At around 10.44am, the Queen's coffin was towed from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey by Royal Navy sailors. There it was carried inside by soldiers from the Queen's company, with the royal family and members of the palace household following behind. At the service, there were lots of Bible readings, including this from Liz Truss. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The Archbishop of Canterbury was a slightly more engaging speaker. People of loving service are rare in any walk of life. Leaders of loving service are still rarer. But in all cases, those who serve will be loved and remembered when those who cling to power and privileges are long forgotten. Her late majesty's broadcast during COVID lockdown ended with, we will meet again. Words of hope from a song of Vera Lynn. That comment from Welby about clinging to power was read either as a dig at Boris Johnson or the various autocrats in the room. More impressive than the service, though, was the pomp that followed. Viewers watched as the coffin was again towed by members of the Royal Navy, this time passed large crowds as it made its way to Wellington Arch by Hyde Park. The coffin was then transferred to a hearse and driven to Windsor. Onlookers lined the road for large parts of that journey. And there were more large crowds and a procession as the hearse arrived at Windsor Castle. There was then another televised service and the Queen is due to be interred in a private ceremony at 7.30pm. Aaron, what did you make of it all? You know, it's been built up the first state funeral since Winston Churchill. Obviously, a lot of time, money, effort went into it. Is it politically significant what we've seen today? Strange question, Michael. Is it politically significant? I think it's too soon to tell. And often, you know, people are trying to have their take and be first in and say, this is the definitive account of what this means and what's finished and what started. The truth is, we don't know. I think the things we'll be talking about over the rest of this show, some of the responses to it, I think do suggest what may be in our path over the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years. Clearly, uh, given, the, given the crowds, there is massive, I think, inarguably, support for the monarchy in England. There is no overt hostility. 
And yes, of course, it's a funeral. People don't make problems at funerals. But it's important to say, even with the um, investiture of Prince Charles, for instance, in the 1960s, there were bomb scares and so on. There was nothing like that today. So very calm, very peaceful, very tranquil. All of the platitudes, and there are platitudes, about the stability of Britain, uh, you know, the peaceful transfer of power and across generations with regards to the monarchy, all of those were, were, were in evidence today. So in terms of political sort of meaning, no idea. And I, I think it would be a fool's errand to say, to say what it means. I think that the sort of hard yards of, of, of monarchy and, and the reign of King Charles III will be over weeks, months, years. And whether he's popular or unpopular will be defined by that, not by how the cameras interpreted the, the spectacular events of, of today, as visually stunning as they were. So in terms of uh, making political conclusions, I, I would suggest that's unwise. On the more mundane level, maybe this is putting on show my lack of knowledge about how royal state events usually go. But watching the hour-long service, which was, you know, when you had the, the readings, the songs, and the sermon from the Archbishop of Canterbury, I was kind of expecting to hear more stuff about the Queen. Like for me, a good funeral, I mean, a good funeral may be a strange phrase, but a sort of a funeral which you sort of remember that brings you to peace with the person who passed should have at least a couple of jokes, should have some anecdotes about the person. You know, I probably should have known this wouldn't happen. Maybe it's not part of tradition, but I was expecting, you know, maybe Charles to speak, someone who actually knew her very well. But apart from Justin Welby's sermon, it was all just psalms and, and hymns and stuff. I don't know, Aaron, is that, is that surprising to you? That's not what I would expect a funeral to normally, to normally look like. I think you've hit on something really important, Michael, which is that this was a funeral for a head of state. For, um, uh, for an institution, for part of the political apparatus of this country for 70 years, less than for a person, a human being who lived a life, who had children, grandchildren, so on. Maybe that's part of the private service that the family has later on. But like you say, it's important to remember, somebody, somebody died, and this entire ceremony is actually about, well, the span of life that you lived and, and, and how it relates to the British state and the function you performed as you know, the head of the royal family, the head of the, the aristocracy in this country. I do find it a bit strange. I mean, there's obviously not going to be many other funerals like it. That said, Michael, I'm not all that familiar with Anglican funerals, I have to be honest. The funerals I've been to have been either Catholic or relatively secular. But it is a shame. Nobody, nobody talked about her as she was as a human, which actually, in terms of the sort of popular appeal of the royals, that, that is the stuff that cuts through. Oh, they're just like us. And of course, they're not just like us. But there are, like you say, personal stories that all the people well, nearly all the people in that room would have, and which I'm sure they'd love to relate, particularly her closest family members. So yes, but again, that sort of underscores the point here, right? This is a moment of political state-managed theatre rather than the funeral of somebody. So it is quite unique in that regard. Well, I have been to a couple of Anglican funerals, probably never like a kind of high Anglican funeral like this. But normally you have like one religious figure, in my experience, you have one religious figure, it'd be like the vicar or, or the priest or whatever, I suppose it wouldn't be a priest if it's Anglican. And they do couple of hymns, they sort of introduce, do an outro, but then in between you have members of the family come up, someone reads a poem, someone gives an anecdote and a joke. It's all a bit more, it was a bit varied. I thought that the sermon or the, the service was a little bit repetitive for me, but nonetheless, obviously impressive. I mean, it, visually, it was very, very impressive, the, the whole thing. And there were quite big crowds for most of it. So I'm sure that monarchists and the people who were organizing this will come away from this thinking job well. Done. Next story. 
The VIPs in attendance at the Queen's state funeral included 19 serving monarchs, 55 presidents, and 23 prime ministers. But there was one category of invitees whose presence seemed more anachronistic. They included Prince Pavlos of Greece. Crown Prince Pavlos is here. He's travelled to London for Queen Elizabeth's funeral. He's the eldest son and second child of Constantine II, the last king of Greece from 1964 to 1973. Queen Elizabeth is his third cousin, twice removed. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, What are your memories of the Queen? Well, the Queen has always been a very um, kind person to my family, always received us with a smile. Um, my parents were very well uh, taken care of by her when we left Greece and obviously lived in England for many years thereafter. And um, my father was always a good confidant uh, for the family and was always by her side. And sadly, he's not so well now, so he's unable to, to come over. So I'm going with my mother and my wife to stand in uh, for my father. Uh, but the Queen was always receiving us with great uh, smiles and family friendship. Uh, always inquiring of how things were going on back home or elsewhere. Mm. One of the most wonderful people ever. One of the most wonderful people ever. So much has been said about her empathy and kindness. That's something you saw up close. Her empathy, her kindness and her service. And she was a real guiding force for the rest of us young people, um, not only from her family, from beyond that, just and and for her husband as well, Duke of Edinburgh. Both of them were dedicated to their service. And um, that came through in a very natural way to us as well because they'd ask you questions on what you were doing in life and how you were getting on and expected to move on in the right way. And uh, those were great guidelines that she kept till the very end. That interview was notable, not just because the only question posed by the supposedly neutral BBC journalist was, so so just how kind was the Queen? Can you tell us, give us all the examples of her being kind? But because the supposed Crown Prince of Greece is no such thing. Greece abolished their monarchy in a referendum in 1974. They have no kings, queens, princes, or princesses. But Prince Pavlos is not the only royal pretender who attended the Queen's funeral. This is a screenshot from the Wikipedia page listing attendees at that state funeral. And this is the section of members of non-reigning royal houses. It includes the Archduke of Austria, which is a republic, the Tsar of Bulgaria, which is a republic, the Prince of Venice, which is part of the Italian Republic, and the Crown Prince of Yugoslavia, a country which no longer exists. Uh, Aaron, what's the deal here? What's going on? How can the BBC introduce someone as the Prince of Greece when, you know, people in Greece are watching and say, we have a prince? We're a republic. We don't have a prince. What's going on? What's the background? How do we understand this? Yeah, I had to say my favourite was the Prince of Venice. Uh, A nice little fact for our viewers out there, the House of Savoy, which was the Italian royal family, of course, they became a republic also by referendum in 1946. Huge majority to, to, well, a big majority to become a republic. It was, I think, until 2002 that they weren't physically allowed back in the country, which I just find really like funny. You know, basically they were exiled for 60 years because they weren't trusted to not try and seek a return to power. And I think that underscores all of this, Michael. These people don't give up these titles because they think one day I will be allowed back in. I can be the Tsar of Bulgaria. Or maybe there'll be the reformation of the Austro-Habsburg Empire. Or maybe Greece will have a need for a constitutional monarch above the political fray. Uh, and of course, that might sound ridiculous. You'd say, well, why would they want that? Well, apparently it's good enough for Britain, so why can't it be good enough for Greece? If there was a political crisis, I'm sure those people would make those arguments. And if you think I'm being ridiculous, look at Afghanistan in the uh, aftermath of uh, the occupation in, in 2001-2002. There were 
conversations then about, well, why don't we install a, a monarch? Where there was a monarch here there until, until I think the 60s. Why don't we reinstall a monarch and they can be above uh, the everyday political fray? Or in Iran, there was, of course, a revolution there in 1979. They got rid of the Shah. His son today is still in the United States and Beverly Hills, raising money and lobbying uh, the White House. And he still thinks that one day he'll be back in, you know, the Gulistan Palace in Tehran, ruling over his kingdom as he sees it. I think that's the case for lots of these people. They view this as their birthright and that one day they may have a shot at getting it back. It's happened before. Uh, I, I have to say, I think that the the Yugoslavia probably is a bit of a push, Michael, given, like you say, it, it no longer exists as a political entity. Uh, important to say also, it didn't exist until the Treaty of Versailles. It's not like it's some ancient, archaic country. It was put together after 1919. So it was a pretty short-lived political experiment, only, what, 70 years. And of course, for the majority of that time, it was a republic under a communist regime. So, uh, yeah, I think that is, uh, I think that's rather hopeful. But I think others, they think maybe one day, why not? Italy, Greece. And I think this is an important takeaway for our audience, Michael. History doesn't just move in one direction. There are reactionary forces in this world who would like those people back in seats of unelected power and authority. And that's what the left has historically posed itself against. And the fact that these people see this as a, an opportunity to put themselves the forefront, the forefront of popular sort of culture and consciousness is, is deeply troubling, but uh, expect more of it. Because my take is, and I think sort of some of the arguments I've seen in response to Queen Elizabeth dying is less kind of Whiggish defenses of monarchy, but actually overtly reactionary ones. So yes, we'll see a lot more of these people, I think. Yeah, and I think their presence, and there were a few moments watching events today where it did seem like what I'm watching is not just a bit silly and a bit embarrassing. And there are lots of parts, as, as, as we'll talk about later in the show, lots of parts of this period of national mourning where I have thought some of it's quite sweet, you know, we'll talk about the queue in a moment. But there are other parts where you think this is, this is like all the forces of reaction assembled in a room. And then the entire British media saying this is completely normal and not only normal, it's wonderful. And, I, I, and you do think if you've assembled in, in that room, in the funeral, the descendants of all of these people who were overthrown in democratic revolutions or democratic referendums because they were, you know, they were anti-democratic, then to have them there and us all just sort of be celebrating it as, as normal. And I mean, to be honest, if you're watching the BBC there and you don't know the context, you think Greece has a prince, which also kind of serves to normalize the monarchy because it's like, like oh no, everyone's got a monarch. Austria's got an archduke. Greece has got a prince. Even Venice has got a prince. It's like, no, these people are pretending. They're not real royals. They abolished it. And maybe we should do that too. Let's go on to our next story. We've got a lot to cover today. The police have given Republican protesters a hard time since the death of the Queen, but they're even tougher if you're a stray skater on a road meant for the King.
Now, I have no doubt the police are under a lot of pressure when it comes to guarding the royals and all of these VIPs visiting. They'll be on the lookout for terrorist threats and the like. But that seemed, to say the least, very disproportionate to me. Not everyone would agree, though. Here's that moment from a different angle. Oh, no, there's always one, isn't there? Yeah, Shoot him. Wow. Aaron, has the Queen's death brought out Britain's more authoritarian side? No. These people always exist, Michael. I know I, we have a, you know, we have obviously a, a, an audience across age, age ranges, and I'm sure our older members of our audience will be fully aware of just how reactionary some people are. If you're a bit younger and you go to university in London and you just live in London and you had progressive parents, this is a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of know that because my, my mother was, she was a Tory voter. I think I've talked about this before. She was sort of working class Thatcherite, came out of the 80s, had a small business. She had a sandwich shop. She identified with Thatcher. She loved Princess Di. Strange woman because she also really hated the royals because of how they treated Princess Diana. You know, it was a very strange contradiction there. She would say things like, send in the army. Or, you know, that, that old platitude. Maybe you remember this from being a kid, Michael. What we need is a good war. People mm. would say that. Of course, the only people that would say that were the, the sort of only generation of that century who hadn't actually seen a good war, which was, you know, the, the boomers. So no, th this stuff is very much in the, in the national political idiom. Uh, it's not going on anytime soon. We can talk about where it comes from, of course. And that's pretty quite a long, a long conversation. <laughs> Important to say that only SO15 actually have firearms of all British police. Very strange thing to say, shoot him. Again, it is a, a reflex that is there in the British psyche, English psyche increasingly. Shoot him, send in the army. They haven't got guns. You know, they did what they did because they don't have guns. SO15 have guns. You have firearms, you know, which have guns. British police, as one would hope, will stay for the rest of our lives, do not have firearms on them. So, idiots. Lots of them, Michael. That's why I kind of, uh, this is very irrelevant, really. Going back to the whole Brexit thing, when people were saying, oh, 400 constituencies voted to leave the EU, but we can change their minds. No, no. If you can sort of address these people and sneak in some socialist policies and public ownership, you're doing really well. But you're not going to stop this. I'm sure there was someone close enough to Prince, oh, oh, I keep calling him Prince Charles, King Charles's car with a gun, a copper with a gun. Fox was saying just as that clip was ending, did actually get pretty close to uh, Charles's car. I don't know how he managed to get that far or why the road was completely open, slightly bizarre. Before we move on, Aaron, policing, one element of, of this, this, this past week, what will it be remembered for? Trying to arrest people with, with, with signs that say abolish the monarchy or the fact that, you know, to be fair to them, th this is all passed without any big, bad events. I mean, it's not a particularly journalistic word, but, you know, there hasn't been any tragedies. No one seems to have got crushed. There hasn't been anything that seems to have gone particularly wrong. Are they going to be patting themselves on the back? This week will be remembered for two things, Michael. Today and the queue. Nothing else will be remembered because those are the things that, that serve formal establishment political interests. The, the spectacle of the queue, Michael, that is just, that's all we're going to hear about 40, 50 years time. Were you there in the queue? No, I wasn't. I found it a bit odd that people were willing to stand for 15 hours to walk past somebody's coffin, but each to their own. If it was an hour, maybe I would have gone. I, I know that caused some upset in the interview I did with Ash that we published on Navarro Media yesterday, but I think that's how people will reflect on this, is the remarkable queue of 2022.
I did queue for an hour to go to Buckingham Palace, just sort of out of interest. Um, also, I was a bit of a crowd trooper. I was like, the, the crowds are not that big. There's, no, there's barely anyone standing behind this BBC reporter. In a way, I think that was because of the way they, they'd managed the situation. I can't really deny that lots of people um, have wanted to be involved. We do want your support. Navarra Media survives from the support of its regular donors. If you aren't already one, please do go to navarramedia.com slash support and donate whatever you want every month. If you already are, thank you so much. You make all of this possible. Next story. The Queen's funeral was an impressive affair, but even with all the pomp, I'm not sure it met the expectations set by the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle. He said this to BBC's Laura Koonsberg. It's been important to try and make sure we get it right, and it's about showing the respect and the dignity and doing it in the right way. And we should not allow anything to overshadow the most important event the world will ever see, and that's the funeral of Her Majesty. And the passing of a majesty has brought people together. The most important event the world will ever see. Why has the Queen dying turned our entire media and political class into toddlers? Toddlers, like that, that is something that you would hear in like a, a Disney film. The most important event the world will ever see. More important than, you know, allies winning the Second World War or the the communist revolution in China, more important than going to the moon, a 96-year-old woman who, you know, ostensibly didn't have any political power dying. Michael, important caveat here, he didn't say human history, he said the world has ever seen. So presumably we can include, you know, the Big Bang, the arrival of life, the first, I'm being serious, the first mammals, humans about 200,000 years ago, agriculture about 12,000 years ago. Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, no, that all comes second to today. Well, we're very lucky if that's the case. We've seen it on, on BBC One this afternoon, if that's true. Mm, very fortunate. Look, this goes to the, the, the fundamental point of, 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 of monarchy as a political system is, of course, it, it's ba it rests upon sycophancy. It's generated by sycophancy. Its intellectual basis is sycophancy and a belief in human subordination and some people literally being born to rule and others not. Now, of course, we've had in the last 100, 150 years, people sort of mitigate that a little bit say well we don't really believe in it but you know it's just uh, it's the least worst system mm, you know I, I i prefer republican theory okay some republics don't work out but the idea that your son or daughter is born and they're you know just as good to reach the very you know top of executive power in the country as anyone else i think that's a really powerful idea look joe biden was in there today michael probably the least posh person in there yet he is at the top of the political system of the most powerful nation in history. I think that's a really remarkable, animating story for a country, for a nation, for a people, personally. In answer to your question, why are all these people being so sycophantic? Well, monarchy is a system which is based upon sycophancy. And the way he said majesty, majesty he couldn't say it quietly enough. Majesty, you know. And Lindsay, uh, this, this gentleman, the Speaker of the House, because he's got a non-received pronunciation accent, people think, oh, you know, red wall, proper Labour man. His dad was a, an MP. He comes from a sort of political family. Maybe he got there on his own merits. I don't know, Michael. But uh, you can go really far in life and in this country if you just make your nose as brown as possible, especially in politics, especially in politics, particularly in politics. You can have a great political career if you just brown nose the establishment, the status quo, say that nothing is wrong, everything is hokey-dokey, and the sunshine comes out their backside. You'll do really well. And Lindsay Hoyle, he's, uh, he's a prime example of it. An interview I'd really like to do, actually, 
I suppose just to plug a, a Navarro video that went out today that I think is very good. My colleague Rivka Brown was talking to people who were in the queue sort of about their experiences and sometimes sort of slightly sort of challenging and their views about the moniker or whatever. Very interesting. What I would really like to do, though, is an interview with someone like Lindsay Hoyle or one of the BBC journalists who've been talking to us for the past eight days and finding out, do you really believe this? Because I, I, obviously, when Lindsay Hoyle is on the Laura Koonsberg show, no one is going to say to him, do you really mean that? Because that's not how BBC coverage works at this period of time. Someone will give an anecdote and say, oh, God, that's such a lovely story you've told. Have you got anything else nice to say about the Queen? That's literally all, all interviews are. But I would love to sit down with Lindsay Hoyle or Hugh Edwards or whoever, one of the people who've been on TV and not you know, said objectively, look, this is obviously a significant moment, so we're going to report on it, saying that the Queen is a wonderful, fabulous woman. This is the most important event ever in Lindsay Hoyle's case. And just have that conversation. You know, not grill them, but have that conversation because I would love to see how Lindsay Hoyle would, would be able to sort of explain and justify that. It's, it's slightly different with, with Keir Starmer. Obviously, he's been saying lots of ridiculous things, but the argument with him is he wants to get elected, so he's got a brown nose, the queen, as much as possible. Lindsay Hoyle isn't, you know, I, I don't even think he, he has to stand for election because he's the Speaker of the House of Commons, right? So, so who's he doing this for? And it's exactly the same with all of these journalists. Who are you doing this for? Have you, have, have you sort of forced yourself to believe? Or is this just what you're saying to fit in? Or, uh, you know, is it sort of four-dimensional chess and the sort of the, the very thoughtful, intelligent side of you has decided that actually constitutional monarchy is the best way to maintain stability in this country and for it to continue. People like us um, have to pretend that, you know, essentially the divine right of kings still exists. Very briefly on that, Aaron, which, where do you think it falls? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to basic patronage, Michael. If you want to get ahead, if you want to be rewarded, you want to get that knighthood, you want to be in the House of Lords, then you need to say the right things. We saw it with David Beckham last week. You know, I, I, again, I'm not going to impugn David Beckham. I don't know his motives for being in that queue. But what we've seen historically is in emails that have been disclosed, which were meant to be private communications, him saying, well, look, I came, I came out for keeping the UTK together during the Scottish referendum campaign. I've done X, I've done Y. You know, why haven't I been rewarded with a knighthood? And that is, that is a very toxic system of patronage. The idea that, well, I'll do everything the establishment says if I'm allowed to, you know, have a few letters after my name, or if I can go and sit in the House of Lords and sit in my house and get 300 pounds a day and do nothing. That's a really bad problem. And so I think whether or not you're a monarchist or a Republican, the systems of patronage that this engenders as a country are, are really counterproductive. It doesn't help solve problems. It gives rise to really decadent, useless political class. It gives rise to a media, which fundamentally isn't even interested in listening to people, let alone trying to give them a voice. So I would say alongside that, Michael, because of course you're, you're talking about his comments on the BBC, this really illustrated the extent to which the BBC is not a public service broadcaster. It is a state broadcaster. There is no alternative reality or set of events where the BBC does this story in any other way. If it had a different chairman, if it had a different board, they would not make different editorial choices. The reason being because the BBC is a state broadcaster. Lindsay Hoyle says that on the Laura Koonsberg show because of the intimate relationship in this country between the media and the state and political power, particularly the BBC. Everybody knows that, everybody believes that, except for several thousand liberals, and pretty much all of them work in the media and politics. Straight on. The Queen's funeral came with lots of pomp and BIPs, but it's the cue to see the Queen lying in state that will be remembered as the real success story of this period of national mourning. 
With hundreds of thousands of people queuing for up to 24 hours to see the Queen's coffin, it's hard to deny there was a significant well of affection for her. But the queue also became an attraction in and of itself. Everybody's here for their parents and their grandparents of that generation that have done so much. I mean, look at all these people. This is our little group. We've got a WhatsApp group. The Queen's queue. And how have you kept yourself busy during the night? Um, talking to people. Yeah. Making friends. Yeah. Thinking about the Queen. So you met in the queue. Tell me about it. Uh, yeah, we all turned up here first thing to want to pay our respects to Her Majesty and joined the queue back at Southwark Bridge and just struck up a conversation and we've been chatting for the last six hours and yes. chatting yeah. and we formed a little uh, WhatsApp group <laughs> and sent each other pictures of things that have shared pictures things that have been happening and it's it's been very lovely it's been extra special to have met people Yes, there has been lots of talk of people making friends in their 13-hour or 6-hour or 20-hour waits to see the Queen. Lots of WhatsApp groups formed, of course. And there's been non-stop coverage of the queue, which hasn't always brought out the best in British journalism. This was a push notification pushed out from the BBC. Watch. David Beckham turns to crisps and donuts to keep him going in his wait to see the Queen lying in state. So cutting-edge public service journalism there. Um, David Beckham, of course, earned lots of praise for queuing. Meanwhile, though, ITV's Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby became public enemies when they appeared to skip it. This Twitter user shared a screenshot of the pair and said, can we all agree that we're done with Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield? It gets over 5,000 retweets. Another said, this is a photo taken by my sister's husband yesterday after he had queued with my sister, their 10-year-old daughter and my disabled mum for 13 hours. My mum was ushered out of Holly, Holly Willoughby's and Philip Schofield's way so they could hashtag queue jumpers without even a thanks. Hashtag Schofield gate, hashtag queue jumpers. Now, we can't verify the contents of that tweet, but in any case, the backlash was so big that ITV had to release a statement clarifying that Holly and Philip were only there for work purposes. Now, if Holly and Philip might have preferred not to be photographed, others went to great lengths to ensure there was evidence of their visits. This Tory councillor must have scrolled back iPlayer to find this footage of himself bowing for the Queen. Very, very genuine, I think, to go and pay your respects and then scroll back um, on the news so that you can tweet it out afterwards. But if that strikes you as pure cynicism, it's hard not to find the next video at least a little bit cute. We met at like 10.30 last night. We've been with each other throughout the whole thing wow. till now, yeah. We've actually got loads of things in common. Yeah. 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 So will you stay in touch? Yeah, yeah 100%. We're, we're going to the uh, um, funeral on Monday together. Are you? Yeah. yeah. And how are you feeling about that? The funeral's going to be... I mean, it's going to be sort of mixed emotions and it's sort of, I guess, something that is like part of history. So we want to be there and sort of share that moment, I yeah. guess, with someone else. And how are you feeling about it? It's a huge day. Well, it's pretty kind of going to be like somber, really. And the whole thing, like seeing the Queen go down, like through to, is it Windsor? It's just going to be, it's just be weird to see, really. And how have you found being in, in this queue, no sleep? To, well, I don't know about you, but to, for me, I was like meeting you guys. <laughs> it's like a blessing in disguise because it was like, 
it, I thought I was going to be exhausted, but like it's just gone so quickly in the queue. How have you kept been... each other going? Have there been tricks for the trade? No, just like well, I guess like just like sharing laughs. stories, having laughs, and like banter good and chat. Yeah, yeah, good chat. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Any snacks? Oh, you any snacks? What do you have? Kettle crisps. Yeah. Croissants. <laughs> yeah. So the crisps in the chat have been crucial. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Made it. Made it. It's got very first date vibes. He says kettle chips. Like, ah, kettle chips. I'm happy for them in any case, even if it's probably not my dating pool that the, the queue represents. Finally, this was a brief interview between Sophie Rayworth and two of the last people in the queue. With me now, Sarah and Mark, who were, if not the last people, very much the last people yeah, we were in the queue last night. What, what was that like? Amazing. It's the, I think it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Even having my, my children, Lily and Luca, <laughs> I think this tops that. Oh, commiserations. Go out to Lily and Luca. Aaron, what's your take on the queue as a, as a social and political phenomenon? Well, I think in many ways it encapsulates uh, some of the stranger things about Britain. And I think the, the first one being that it was clearly miserable and, and people are presenting it as something you saw euphoric and wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they want to go and see the Queen rest in state. I mean, they're obviously, they can make a lot of time doing that. But I, I presume they would have preferred to have gone there within an hour or two hours, not have to wait 14, 15 hours, 24 hours. I think there was something like apparently 400 people had had health complications while waiting, Mike. I mean, that's quite a lot of people. And of course, it was quite cold. So I, I find it quite strange. There is also a part of me that thinks this was managed in such a way to, of course, generate a more interesting sort of political spectacle for the audience and for history and for those watching from overseas. You could have had QR codes and people could come at certain times. Of course, you could have. That wouldn't have generated the spectacle, this visual sublime that, of course, BBC and the palace would have wanted. Understandably so, but you know, it would have saved a lot of waiting for people. I... Look, Michael, there's a lot, I've said this repeatedly over the last 10 days. I don't understand this country anymore. When my dad came to this country in the, in the late 1970s, it was a country of understatement, restraint, stiff upper lip. And now people sort of cry because their children tell them that they're going to be protected by the new king. And they say that waiting in a queue for 14 hours gave them more happiness than giving birth to two children. I don't, I don't understand these people, Michael. So maybe I'm not the best person to ask. I mean, I, I think I disagree with you on people would have preferred it to have been a one hour wait, because I do think that people ended up going kind of for the queue. I mean, obviously, you know, that these aren't going to be people who are like Republicans or who hate the Queen. But I don't think necessarily people thought, oh, um, I really want to see the Queen. And it's unfortunate there's a 13 hour queue. I think probably a lot of people went to see the Queen because they saw the queue. And I actually think, you know, obviously, I don't really back the reason they're queuing, but I respect that desire to be part of something communal and to stand next to strangers for 13 hours. Like it is often in those sort of difficult, awkward moments that are very memorable and you do make like quite long lasting relationships. I suppose you, you probably have similar memories that I do, Aaron, sort of like activism in our early 20s when you have to you squat a building and you have to do something that's quite uncomfortable for a few hours. You're eating you know, some, someone brings in some some food after six hours where you haven't had any and everyone's sort of sharing it. It's all quite charming and, and, and memorable. And I feel like this just gave people an excuse to do that. And I suppose why I think that's potentially politically relevant is because I feel like Republicans probably do need to have an answer as to where that's going to come from. Obviously, once every 70 years, getting to queue for 13 hours is not a huge advert for monarchism. But I do think there is a desire for people to be part of something collective. And I think if, if that is 
physically uncomfortable, that doesn't necessarily detract from it because it's the difficulty of doing it, which brings people together. If it's comfortable, people won't start talking to each other. They get to laugh about how many kettle chips they, they had for 12 hours. It's kind of interaction people, I think, yearn for. What do you think of that? I think there's something to that, Michael. I mean, like you say, the idea of deferred gratification and the, perhaps the the emotional investment given and actually finally walking past the coffin, I'm sure a lot of that was added to by the fact you've had to wait for 14, 15 hours in a queue. I mean, you're comparing it to squatting a building. I don't think I could stay on my feet for 15 hours and just shuffle along. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's really easy if you want to, want to see something at the end of it. I do think you've hit on a really important point there, Michael, which is a lot of this is not, like you say, committed royalists and monarchists. I'm, I'm sure like the overwhelming majority of people going to this, of course, they support the royal family. But I, I don't think that, you know, they're deeply emotionally invested in ideas of monarchism. I think they could vote for all parties and none. Um, I think you'd have a range of sort of esoteric, wild opinions on virtually everything. I don't think this is a homogenous block of people. I agree with you. But what does bring them together, and I think this is generally underestimated by the left and Republicans, is the desire to be part of something bigger than themselves. And of course, the nation allows you to do that. Investment in the nation allows you to do that. What I don't understand, though, with the royal family, Michael, is, and it's put very well by um, Tom Nairn, is that most nations have a series of dynasties, right? So if you look at Iran, Persia, a series of, of dynasties, you've got most recently the Pahlavis, the Qajars, you've got the Achmanids thousands of years ago, very famous from all the Greek expeditions and whatnot, the Parthians, the Sassanids, and of course, we've had many um, dynasties in this country, the Tudors, the Stuarts, and whatnot. But with the House of Windsor and the, and the modern royal family, it doesn't feel like it's a nation with a dynasty, but rather a dynasty with a nation, like the national bits tied onto it. And I think that's what revolts me about it more than anything else. I have a criticism of, of monarchy anyway, but when, for instance, we have the armed forces not pledging allegiance to a people or a nation state, but a monarch and their successors, I, I don't see why people would be invested in that because it just, it's almost like a, it comes from a place of believing in your own subordination and your unimportance. And so I suppose if you, if you take what you're saying, which I agree with, and then that conclusion, you think, well, it should be quite easy for Republicans to be able to sell a vision of society and politics, which is more alluring and attractive than this. I think it's certainly easier than they recognize, but that says a hell of a lot about the Republican movement, doesn't it? that actually people can get more enthused about waiting in a queue for 14 hours eating kettle chips and anything that the other side has to offer. And I think that's cause for reflection. There is a bit of a path dependency here, though, because it, it's, if the whole point is you're doing something that someone else, is, someone else is doing, then the Republicans are already starting from a difficult position because being a counterculture as opposed to like this big dominant culture is more difficult, potentially. Obviously, some people prefer it. We have a poll in a moment, which is going to show there is one thing on which Navarra Media is aligned with the public when it comes to the Queen and her death. Let's go to our next story. The public think the media have gone overboard in their coverage of the Queen's death. YouGov asked people whether media coverage of the event had been too much, too little, or about right, and these were the results. So 41% say it was about right, 49% say it was too much, only 2% said it was too little. So there are 2% of people who think we needed more than 24-hour rolling coverage. So the BBC would probably have had to have invented another hour in the day. And Don't Knows was 8%. Aaron, finally, the public agree with us on something. Yeah. Although I do love that, that 2% who don't think there's been enough media coverage. <laughs> what would they have liked to have seen? 
I would love, I would love us to seek those people out, you know, and just say, well, what would you have liked? What, what, what should we have done? Because it was wall to wall on pretty much every channel all of the time. The exception today, of course, being Channel Five, who had who had a film about emojis. They had the emoji I, movie, yeah. The emoji movie. I don't know. I'm, like, I'm too old to understand a film about emojis. Just so. I don't know what it is either. No. I glaze over. But anyway, too young for the quite, monarchy, quite too old for the emoji movie. We were homeless today. <laughs> we were politically homeless, Michael. Geriatric millennials are finding themselves we were, as politically homeless. We were culturally homeless. homeless because all we could watch was either a, uh, the funeral of a monarch or the emoji movie. Us poor millennials stuck in the middle. We're in agreement on this. Do you think it might have backfired, the sort of wall-to-wall media coverage? Obviously, I don't think those 49% of people now suddenly think, let's get rid of the monarchy. But I think they might think, God, this has gone a bit overboard, hasn't it? No, I don't think it will backfire. I mean, this is, they've, they've done everything. This is the generation, of, this is the manufacturer of consent. It's why they do it. I don't think it's backfired. No, I think everything's gone off to a T. I think they've dotted all the T's, crossed all the I's. They've put a ribbon on it. They've sent it first class. And this is how history will remember the end of the Elizabethan age. I do think they've got a, 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 if you're a monarchist, I do think there are a series of problems, which of course, as we'll talk about in a story, the next story, the one after, the integrity of the union and, and King Charles III. Because of course, his mother was very good as a neutral monarch, not really getting involved in politics, although she did in Australia. She helped remove Gough Whitlam. In uh, the UK, she helped impose one Tory candidate over another after Harold Macmillan. So uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I think the Tory, uh, the Tories, the <laughs> interchangeable. I think the monarchy does have problems with regards to the succession of Charles III, but it has nothing to do with what's happened over the last week. And the people who who find this coverage a bit over the top were probably expecting as much. I, I, I challenge anyone to be surprised by the coverage. For me, what's interesting, Michael, actually, is the dissonance between the mediatization of this all and then your everyday conversations with people. Like, there's a real dissonance. Obviously, lots of respect for the woman. I'm not saying that everybody on the grassroots outside of Westminster is a Republican, far from it. But there's a lot more acceptance, acknowledgement. Well, she was 96, 97. That's life. She, she lived for a very long time. There's a really big gulf between that and then this sort of official narrative that's being pumped out from uh, the, the BBC and others, just nonstop, you know, um, nonstop platitudes and superlatives. That to me is interesting. But no, I don't think it's going to radicalize anybody. I think there will be moments of that, though. I think, for instance, the investiture of, um, of Prince William in Wales next year, I think that could radicalize people. There will be lots of moments over the next 18 months where I think, you will see quite strong, profound arguments made for a republic. Yeah, I think also with the coronation of, of King Charles, because presumably the BBC will have a similar approach. And I think if they do wall-to-wall coverage of that for a number of days, people are going to be a bit annoyed and they're going to feel very comfortable expressing that because it's, it's no longer related to someone's passing. And there isn't the same affection to him as there is, is towards the Queen. I also wonder if this will potentially undermine the BBC more than the monarchy because, well undermine among some people. I think in, in a way this will massively shore up the BBC because I think a lot of what they've been doing over the past 10 days is saying, look, Tories, you, you can fund us because we are actually pillars of the establishment. We're doing our job properly. I think there will be, especially younger people who think, what the hell is the BBC doing? It, it is a state broadcaster. So that could be risky for them, even though I'm sure that their chair is like, this has gone so well. So what if we pissed off 49% of the public, the Tories, the people in power, love us, and Keir Starmer, who sounds just as brown-nosy towards the royal family, he's also going to be pretty happy with this. He, or Liz Truss, will obviously be prime minister in, in three years' time. Our final story. Republicanism appears to have been banned from our TV screens over the past few days. But there's one part of public life where dissent has got through. 
This was how some Dundee United fans marked a minute of silence before a match against Rangers. Following the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, please now observe a minute of silence in her memory, which will start with an equity's whistle, followed by the national anthem. Chant you heard there was Lizzie's in a box, in a box, Lizzie's in a box, to the tune of Give It Up by Casey and the Sunshine Band. The following day, some Celtic fans had their say. This was a planned minute of applause before Sunday's game against St. Mirren. So my suspicion there is that the organisers, you know, suspected that Celtic fans, or some of them at least, wouldn't take part in a, in a minute of silence. I thought of an applause, a minute of applause would be a safer option. And then very innovatively, um, a group of Celtic fans <laughs> sung the chant, clap if you hate the Royals, clap if you hate the monarchy, uh, which put everyone else in the stadium in presumably a very awkward situation, or at least the monarchists in the stadium in an awkward situation. Aaron, I want you to explain the context here. I presume it's not a coincidence that Celtic and Dundee fans, or at least groups of them, are the ones who have been hostile to the Royals and you know, not willing to participate in the state-mandated minutes of applause or minutes of silence? Well, Celtic is obviously it's quite an obvious answer. This is, a, you know, this is a football club immersed in Republican tradition, ties to Ireland. Uh, that, that's nothing new. Dundee United, a bit more surprising. I mean, their historic name was Dundee Hibernian. So again, similar historic roots to Celtic. And the kinds of demographics they reflected and represented. But in recent years, less so. Important to distinguish between Dundee and Dundee United. Lots of people on Twitter saying oh, it's Dundee, it's not Dundee. Although if you go on Google, you'll see that their stadia are right slap bang next to each other, which is quite amusing given they're about the same capacity. I think it's like 14,000, 15,000. Dundee United play at Tanadice. I don't know where Dundee play. My apologies, Scottish football fans. But yeah, Celtic somewhat predictable. Dundee United less so. We're not showing it there, but there were also some interesting boos and shouts and, and names being called at the Everton match, which was more of a surprise to me because this is something I've, tr I've been trying to sort of think and talk about over the last several days. I don't think we're going to see a groundswell of republicanism in England. I think that's a long way off. I think it's close to impossible. But I do think that in the periphery and the, the sort of Celtic fringe, Wales and Scotland, I think there are real challenges for the House of Windsor. Uh, and don't underestimate the fact that people in Scotland, okay, yes, of course it's Celtic, well, yes, of course, it's Dundee United. But when people don't self-censor en masse, that makes far less radical things quite openly permissible to go on television and say, I'm a Republican, or to say it in the pub. So I think we're looking actually at increasingly diverging political cultures between England, Scotland, and Wales. Of course, they've always been different, but I think that's getting stronger over time. And finally, if anybody says, well, look, this is Celtic, they've always been like that. Not so fast. Jock Steen, who was their manager in 1967 when they won the uh, European Cup, the first British team to win the European Cup, the Lisbon Lions, he got an OBE um, in response to that. And he would have got a knighthood. But the, the myth is that he didn't get a knighthood because of, apparently they were a bit too aggressive as a team. They got too many red cards. 
Otherwise, he would have got a knighthood. So yes, of course, Celtic have always been this amazing institution representing, you know, Scottish Irish community, Catholics, etc. But this level of overt disdain and hostility, which important to say, it's not universal across across Celtic fans, but it's there and it's vocal, obviously. The extent of that and the overt nature of it, that is new. Let's wrap up there. And I can promise you, I mean, I have actually enjoyed the royal coverage because I do think it has been a very interesting national moment to find out about the real nature of institutions in, in Britain, how propaganda works, how ideology works, what, what the public might be looking for, meaning in their lives or um, however we want to look at it. But we will be doing less royal coverage over the next few Tisky Sours, I do promise. So um, it has been a pleasure speaking to you over these days of national morning, but we will presumably be moving on to more traditional terrain by Wednesday. Um, Aaron, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Michael. You've been immaculate over the last week. You've been the Hugh Edwards of the left, Michael. That's very kind of you to say. We will be back on Wednesday, as I say, at 7pm as usual. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.